0: You know, the common theme and thread throughout all these stories is that they aren't stories of despair. It's stories of powerful resistance and resilience. Environmental issues are the single most important issue for youth. It, it shouldn't be politicized. You know, our relationships to our own lifelines should not be politicized.
1: Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet. Our aim is to bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Today we're thrilled to speak with Maya Wickler. Maya is an anthropologist, climate justice organizer, and a writer whose work has appeared in Teen Vogue and Vice. Maya is a true positive change maker, using her skills of writing, film, and community organizing to advocate for those on the front lines of climate change. A great deal of her work focuses on uplifting youth leadership and human rights. She was a youth delegate at the UN Climate Talks in 2017 as a member of the organization Sustain Us. Originally from Philadelphia, Maya is currently living in British Columbia, Canada, as a Ph.D. candidate in political ecology at the University of Victoria. She is currently directing a short documentary film featuring the Guiche and women who are leading the fight to protect the Arctic Refuge. Maya was recently selected as a National Geographic early career explorer to document cross-border stories about the threats to wild salmon from mining in northern British Columbia. Maya speaks with us about the impact of storytelling, youth leadership, and how we can all find our role in defending climate injustice. I get
0: asked this question a lot of how I got into what I'm passionate about and it really the truth is for me is that this has always been my life ever since I was a kid I have always been com- incredibly concerned about the environment and our collective well-being in relation to the well-being of the environment and I grew up with severe asthma I still have severe asthma and was hospitalized countless times throughout my childhood and just really understood how precious life is and I think I I really developed a relationship with just my own health and well-being being so intricately connected to the outdoors and, and just the quality of the environment that I was living in. I think that's completely informed and shaped the way that I've moved through my life with the work that I do. So I was starting clubs in high school when I was like 14 and 15, trying to understand how to have a positive impact. And so it really was just this journey of learning. I grew up in Philadelphia and it is not the best city to grow up in, in terms of pollution and being able to access nature and the outdoors. So right when I turned 18, I went to Colorado College, moved out west. I had never been out west before and felt a, a real visceral direct impact that had on my health, being out in the mountains and just in the outdoors and having access to that space. And, um, and when I was doing my undergrad in Colorado College, I really learned about the power of community I did a lot of youth climate justice organizing. My friends and I started Uplift, which is a youth climate movement on the Colorado Plateau. And we were doing outdoor gatherings for several days to bring together all of these different communities all on the Colorado Plateau to unite and strategize and mobilize youth leadership on climate action. And that connected me to Sustain Us because one of the One of my friends in Uplift was also one of the youth delegates in Sustain Us at the UN Climate Talks. So really this network of youth climate justice building in the States is, it seems so vast, yet at the same time, it's so deeply interconnected and completely fueled by these relationships we all have to each other. Given that I did move to Canada to do my master's degree at the University of British Columbia in Anthropology. I felt I was always kind of straddling two worlds of academia and grassroots organizing. And I really wanted to learn how to apply it in a way where both could support the other. And, And I wanted to understand how to have deeper critical analysis of the systemic causes for the climate crisis and the different forms of oppression and injustice that come with it. And the whole time I continued to stay involved in grassroots organizing and so i always have been trying to figure out how to bridge these worlds and just capacity for change that both grassroots organizing and essentially just deep-rooted knowledge can do together
1: and the focus of your master's thesis is is very intriguing Uh, can you speak to what that topic was and that work and what you learned from that work
0: so and my master's thesis is very connected to my PhD. It completely informed and inspired me wanting to take things to the next level with this work. And essentially, I was thinking when I at the time I was 23 and wondering these questions of what will it be like for us to experience massive change in our environment while we're still here and have the memory of what was opposed to what is now. And these changes coming at the hands of great injustice with corporate abuse and climate change. And so I focus specifically on a community that was forcibly displaced for um, Alcan, which is now Rio Tinto, to make a mega dam. And they diverted three quarters of the original flow of the Nachaco River and gave this community less than two weeks notice to leave. So it completely, permanently altered the environment and severed this community from their lands. And they're still navigating what it's like in their everyday to experience that forced displacement on the land that's now forever changed while still holding on to the memory of what that land was and really using memory as a tool of resistance and resilience when still advocating for justice and reparation of those harms that were caused. And so now my my work focuses on still thinking about the power of memory because our our baselines will be shifting for what's normal with climate change. And we're a very adaptable species, but our memory is such a testament to how things can be when the world and our communities are just and they are supported, and especially with how fast the pa- rapid pace of climate change and corporate abuse is happening—whether that's deforestation and old-growth logging, or what's happening with wild salmon and orcas and coastal health—everything it's happening so quick and it's changing between generations. And so, if we don't have that memory of what was, then what would actually compel us? To act, because everything becomes normalized. So that's what the threads of my master's thesis and PhD are focusing on: is how can we mobilize memory as a tool of resistance to address corporate abuse and and advocate for climate justice.
1: No, and I I read that topic. I was like, wow, there's there's a lot to cover there, and the power and strength of a culture of oral history, you know that it's. It's more than just memorizing knowledge, you know, what that actually carries through as it's passed on through generations and that connection to place and the land.
0: Yeah, I remember I was um, doing a bridge build in the Walbrand, which is one of the last sections of intact temperate old growth forest here on Vancouver Island. And there's a history of incredible blockades and resistance that have taken place here on the island to protect some of the last remaining old growth forests. And some folks might be familiar with War of the Woods, which was a huge organizing action that happened a couple of decades ago to protect the Carmana and, and these different sections of old growth forests. And so if someone who has been dedicated to that frontline, there's a name that that person is a War of the Woods veteran. And so I was doing a bridge build with a War of the Woods veteran And I said to him, is it really surreal and hard to be out here again, you know, 20 some years later with us, like these young folks who are gearing up, getting ready to try and do these different trail builds through this proposed cut block site to just have this fight happening again after he already dedicated so much and was arrested and everything to protect the forest. And he said, I, this greatly informed my perspective because he said to me it's not so much that it's surreal that we're here again what's the most surreal to me is that when we were fighting this fight with war of the woods people still knew what a forest was now people think tree farms are forests and the people are forgetting what a real forest is and they can hardly even experience a real forest and that just blew my mind because basically we have these corporations that are replanting trees, which are ultimately tree farms, and they're it's usually one single species densely planted together, and it makes for incredibly unhealthy, dysfunctional tree farms. I don't even want to call it a forest because it's not. It's just like calling farm salmon wild salmon. They're not the same. And I remember it took us over six hours of travel time from Vancouver to get to this forest. And it's one of the last remaining ones. So they're not accessible, they're rare and they're disappearing from public consciousness. And to me, that really is an Orwellian two plus two equals five scenario because it's these, the corporations are able to just say, well, this is a forest. And then we're like, oh yeah, that's a forest, okay. And so I think it's really important that we are paying attention to the stories that we tell, the language that we use, and and really holding on to that memory and having these intergenerational conversations to repair our memory and to kind of bring back, you know, we're building those bridges between these ways of existing and conceptualizing our reality in the environment.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And really kind of a horrifying reality. Um, but shows you why it's so important to share these stories and, you know, really share what's what's at stake. And one of your tools of advocacy is uh, writing. And you've published a lot of work and covered stories specifically of indigenous youth that are on the front lines of standing up for the land and defending against climate injustice. And can you speak to what some of those stories are that you've covered just to give listeners uh An idea of just some of the stories that are going on around North America right now where Indigenous youth are taking these stands on the front lines, you know, to show that there's so much more than just what we're seeing in even the mainstream media.
0: Most recently, I did a story on the Indigenous women who are young women, 24 and 25, who are leading the front lines right now to stop Trump's border wall construction that would literally be severing their homelands and is pumping their sacred groundwater mixed with the soil that has their ancestral remains to create concrete for this wall. It's just the ultimate visceral manifestation of colonial violence. And these young women are just, you know, I, re- I remember one of the most powerful things. And one of the interviews was one of them said to me, you know, I don't need to ask permission to stand up And fight for what's right because my ancestors gave me that permission when they were defending our lands before and generations past and when they were supporting other local tribes and communities that were facing the violence of colonization. So she said, I've had that permission. My ancestors have given me that through their actions. And I just thought that was so powerful. And, And with that, they have been leading these direct action camps that are nonviolent and completely grounded in ceremony and prayer to just honor their history on that land and their promises to their ancestors because it's a burial site. And so that's happening, you know, south. And then north, I've been heavily covering what's going on in the Arctic. And with Trump threatening to drill the wildlife refuge and just how the Arctic is already cl- ground zero for climate change is it's experiencing the impacts at twice the rate as the rest of the world and there's just such incredible young indigenous women who are also leading that fight. And it's a powerful intergenerational matriarchal fight as well. And that's something that I've written about as well for Teen Vogue. It's just, you know, it's so beautiful. It's like the terms like anti-squatter used to describe these women who just like shape and guide and inform the youth to really step into their power and to step into The power of cultural pride and really just assert their autonomy and assert their sovereignty on the land and just reclaim that relationship and so that's been really beautiful to see and then I've also covered the youth um, who really took a stand to support what's been going on for quite some time now but certainly escalated over the last year on the front lines with the Wet'suwet'en in Northern British Columbia, where um, Coastal GasLink is just pushing through their work without the proper permitting, without any consent, even though those are unceded lands, and the Wet'suwet'en already proved their title and jurisdiction to those lands through their hereditary governance system. So it's just absolutely atrocious what's been happening there, and and seeing the violence of the RCMP raid and just how Canada fully supports that ongoing colonial violence. And so youth completely took a stand, which was so powerful and inspiring. And then I've also covered the, the youth who have been organizing tirelessly to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which Canada bought from Kinder Morgan for over $3 billion with taxpayer dollars, also without consent from the nations that would be impacted along that pipeline route. And so I interviewed a really incredible youth from Sl- Tooth Nation, Kaya George, and she is also just guided by these powerful elders in her community. So it's just, you know, the common theme and thread throughout all these stories is that they aren't stories of despair, it's stories of powerful resistance and resilience. It's really stories of love. It's folks who are so in love with their land so in love with culture and community and these really powerful values that completely inform and guide these different ways to take action and stay accountable and stay in relationship to community, where I just really believe that that will far outlast this greed from, you know, corporations and what's happening right now. I really just, think that telling these stories are also ways of showing that the grassroots resistance that is youth-led really is shaping and determining our future, and it's something to be looking to and, and taking leadership from.
1: Yeah, and in your work that you've covered and also participated in, do you see a, a difference in the clarity that youth have as far as seeing the world in a different value system than what older generations have now come to view of the land, you know, whether they're Native or non-Native, if they're, you know, seeing the world through this value system that is more Native and Indigenous-led, of seeing greater value in the land and the health of the land over monetary gain from extractive practices. In your own words, what does that look like, that, you know, these two value systems are, are up against each other and, and what that looks like and what you've witnessed.
0: Well, I think that anyone who's really on the front lines of these issues are experts. And I've interviewed such a spectrum of folks. But I remember always being disappointed by the more high profile people who publicly are known for being advocates on a certain issue, but they certainly are not involved in grassroots organizing, and they're certainly not as directly accountable to community as it needs to be when you're from that community. And I have always found that those who have the best knowledge, the best solutions, the best understanding, and the greatest perspective that encompasses a more humanistic, grounded way of thinking about the world comes from community and is just being completely cultivated in the hearts of the youth and I think that youth are not jaded I think that they have energy and perspective where they're not complacent they're not taking they're not calculating their rate of success and what's worth getting involved in or not they're just going full steam ahead and I would like to follow leadership like that and I think that especially in western society there's such a focus on ageism you know it's only to a certain age can you vote only a certain age can you run for presidency but there's no age limit and you know if someone's too old that's not a thing and so it really creates this rupture of respect and this rupture of understanding intergenerationally the importance of having these dialogues and learning lessons from the past and having the perspective of youth Mold it for the future. And especially within the US and North America, there's such an emphasis on nuclear families. And I think that if we want to talk about values, the difference in values, especially amongst youth, I think indigenous and non indigenous, is that they're disrupting and challenging and complicating that really simplistic way of thinking about relationships and not thinking of things as being so individualized anymore. And You know, pushing outside of the confines of a nuclear way of thinking about our relationship and our families and our communities. And so I really do believe that something that youth across the board share is recognizing this inherent interconnectedness that exists not only amongst us in our own communities, but also with us in the relationship and the environment around us. So I think that essentially we can just fully create ways to support that leadership
1: for sure. And what we can learn from that, you know, of a a kind of unjaded view of, of where the changes really need to happen, you know, how we can really listen to that truly. And there's a great deal at stake for the youth. You know, there's, there's plenty of reason for motivation for them to continue and push harder and harder as, as they've continued to stand up for these causes. You know, really straightforward. Can you just tell us what are those things that are at stake?
0: I remember when we were at the UN Climate Talks, two years ago now, something that we as youth were so frustrated by was the discourse of climate change as the youth are concerned because it's our future being taken from us. But it's not, because climate change is here. And so we need to also complicate that narrative. And I think the thing that's at stake for the youth is that we know what it's like to grow up with that anxiety of not only is the climate crisis here, but it will only continue to worsen and intensify. And I think that youth generally have more diversified relationships and networks right now, and they have access to more diverse perspectives and experiences of people who are on front lines of different climate change impacts, whether that's the wildfires, that are just completely ravaging the West Coast, or those are youth in Alaska who are experiencing climate change happening there. People have access to these different experiences and perspectives in building those relationships. So I think that um, what's at stake for youth is, is everything that's in the present, everything that's in the future as well. Just everything is at stake for the youth. It's absolutely everything, livelihood, sense of identity, different youth being able to maintain their cultural practices and ways of being and living on the land. Our relationships are at stake. You know, our, our ability to what we can dream to be possible with our futures is at stake. I know so, so many friends of mine don't wanna have kids and can't even imagine having kids because of thinking about bringing them into this world. So it's a completely different experience for us, as youth, I
1: think. Yeah, no, it's it's so much coming down on on everyone right now, but I think especially on on the youth and that generation that that will deal with the harshest brunt of it, you know, now and and moving forward, um, and around the conversation of climate and really in advocating for a healthy environment in general has unfortunately become a very political and divisive topic which you know hopefully we can very soon move past that and really unify and and work together to make amazing things happen on that front but a lot of that divisiveness is happening amongst older generations and policy makers Have you seen amongst the youth more of a unity, you know, regardless of political party where, you know, someone's political party didn't matter in the work that you were just coming together to to work on that common cause?
0: Well, I think there's been data and studies that have shown that environmental issues are the single most important issue for youth. And so that is unifying because it it shouldn't be politicized you know our relationships to our own lifelines should not be politicized it's basically a choice between life or death at the end of the day it's a choice between if you're going to just stand by and be a passive bystander or if you're going to defend life itself and i and that's just what it comes down to for environmental justice and i think that you deeply understand that And I think that for previous generations, that understanding has been complicated by the influence of corporations. You know, Shell led a misinformation campaign for over a decade, which was highly effective. So I think for previous generations, there's been, they've had more exposure to the depths of misinformation without the tools of social media, without the tools of community truth telling and storytelling to um, kind of balance out that really skewed narrative. So I think that's also where that difference
1: is. Right, kind of pros and cons of the power of social media and the information that's shared on there, right? Um, And are there any specific instances amongst youth organizers where you've seen specifically uh, Republicans and Democrats or other political parties coming together around this cause?
0: Yeah, because I think that I don't think I've ever asked someone's political affiliation in environmental justice spaces. I do think it's it's more challenging now because you really can't support Trump and say that you support the environment. It's just, it doesn't. That's not reality. He wants to, you know, back out of the Paris climate agreements and is undoing so many environmental laws and selling the public lands at unprecedented rates and sizes of lease sales um, and drilling in the refuge, you know, all these things, he's just absolutely destroying the environment. So I think it's, it's challenging to say that there's been conversation where those two can exist. I think that the conversations and dialogues that I have been in are more so around folks who used to be conservative or they used to vote Republican and they no longer can because they just do not support Trump because they care about the climate or because they have kids and their kids are educating them about how important the climate crisis is. And if they care about their children's future They have to care about the climate crisis. Your number one job as a parent is to protect your kid. So I think that's where I'm seeing that intersection happen.
1: Absolutely. Now, I know as myself, a new parent, it's on my mind constantly, you know, but to use that as a motivation to to continue taking action every day. Um, And you are involved with the organization Sustain Us. And you also were a youth delegate at the UN Climate Talks in Germany um, on behalf of Sustainus. Can you speak to what that organization is and what your work looks like within that group?
0: Sustainus started and is purely a youth-led climate justice organization. And a lot of its beginning was in the UN Climate Talks space, because initially there was not a space for youth at all in the UN Climate Talks, even though youth will be directly impacted by those decisions that are made in those spaces. And so SustainUs was one of the pivotal youth led grassroots groups that created official space for youth in the Climate Talks and try and hold these global leaders accountable to us, you know, to the youth to the people that they're supposed to be representing and really speak truth to power in those spaces and um, and just bring our stories into those spaces because it is our stories that need to be heard and represented in the decision-making process.
1: And do you have any final calls to action for youth out there that are listening Um, for ways to get involved and approachable methods to become involved in this work?
0: I think the first call to action is to believe in yourself. I think that, you know, we live in a capitalistic society that by its very nature necessitates a scarcity mentality and necessitates that we are never enough and we never have enough. So that way we will consume and continue to make this system function and legitimate and I really do believe that that becomes embodied in a real way and especially the individualism every every single problem we face can seem intimidating and impossible when you think about facing it alone and so I think part of dismantling that begins within ourselves with truly believing in ourselves that we are enough and that we can be enough to make these changes that we want to see and to also recognize the power in our collective and the power in coming together in community and relationship with one another. So I think my first call to action really is to believe in yourself and to return to a strong relationship with yourself so that way you can be in a strong relationship with your community and people around you and show up in a good way and I think the other thing too is to really for youth to think about their skills, their talents, and their networks and how they can have influence. Every single person has a different skill. And I remember at first when I learned about climate change, I thought you had to be a scientist studying climate change to address it, which couldn't be further from the truth. There's so many ways that you can get involved. And so I think just thinking, I would challenge youth and everyone to really think, what are you passionate about? What is it that you're really good at? You know, for me, I love writing. I always have. I've always loved being in community. I've always been deeply empathetic as a person. And so it really is in alignment with myself to do the work I do in this way, where I really believe in wielding storytelling as a tool for justice. But for somebody else, you know, we need artists in this movement. Artists convey messages in the most beautiful, viscerally felt way. It's so important to also have scientists. It's important to have innovators. And I remember reading a quote that was saying, you know, we need more peacekeepers. We need more people who will just cook the meals at the front lines. We need more pe- caretakers. So, you know, really there's such a spectrum of ways that you can be involved in whether that's providing care and just and being this nurturing support system for people around you organizing or on the front lines or you want to pursue a degree in school so you can have a deeper analysis and have that critical lens to think about issues there's it's limitless for how people can get involved and so and it, the most beautiful thing is the best way to start is to look within yourself and think about what you already carry and that way, you won't you won't burn out because you're still staying true to yourself and you're doing what you already love.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And for youth who a lot of people may be at a point where they're looking at what they want to do professionally in their lives going forward. You know, it's this applies to all professions. You know, it's not just a niche area of study anymore, as um, climate or environmental science. You know, we need all hands on deck as far as all sectors looking at their work through this lens, you know, whether it's engineering or finance or, you know, medical industry, you know, whatever your professional field that you're looking to get into or that you're already a part of, this approach and these concepts need to be integrated in all sectors, you know, for true systemic change. And as you yourself are a storyteller and use that tool for advocacy, what is some advice and calls to action for storytellers of any medium as far as ways to incorporate this type of action into their own work or, you know, strategies for greater impact?
0: The first thing I always say when it comes to storytelling is remember your ethics. There's such a history an ongoing issue in media and storytelling of exploitation and extraction and failing to recognize how mainstream media is still deeply intertwined with colonialism. We saw that just yesterday with CNN posting that, you know demographic data where they categorized indigenous people as something else And so when you're a storyteller, you have such a huge responsibility to do your storytelling in a good way. And I strongly believe that once someone has told you your story, you just witnessed somebody's personal experience. And as a witness, you are then accountable forever. It's not just, I just told that story, I submitted the piece, I'm at my deadline, I'm done there's a long-term relationship and accountability to witnessing. And I think that that is inextricable from storytelling And, and really just having deep listening and really good consent processes throughout your storytelling. So I always engage the community or folks who I've interviewed in letting them see the piece that rarely happens. Journalists very rarely let community members look at any bit of what they're writing before it gets published. And there usually are oftentimes nuances that writers will miss because they're not from those communities or they don't understand the politics within that community. And those missed nuances can have real harm and consequences in that community. So I think that if you're passionate about storytelling, when it's other people's stories, you have a big responsibility to tell them in a good way. And so really having open lines of communication throughout the entire process, having lots of space for to check in, make sure things are okay, creating space for consent, and really ensuring that the way that you're doing your work is not extractive or exploitative in any way. And I think that Ethics and all of that aside, um, it's just really important to find your voice and to really continue cultivating and nurturing your voice. I feel like I'm just hearing, I'm just receiving the, the sentiments, the way to articulate these stories from the spaces that I'm in. I'm just receiving and then letting that speak through me, through my writing And so, you know, everybody has a different practice, but for me, it really does mean being spiritually grounded and connected to the space that I'm in. So that way, I can have clarity when I'm trying to express and understand these issues and stories to tell.
1: And for older generations, what are some calls to action you have for them as far as, you know, supporting and truly listening to? Um, youth input and youth leadership? I have a
0: huge call to action for older generations. Um, I think that it is so hard for youth to organize to their fullest capacity and potential because of the way life is right now with the housing crisis, inflation, economic issues, and the reality is, is that the generation before has a lot of inherited privilege and access to resources and networks that would greatly support youth and being able to do their work. And so I really think that to support youth is to, you know, maybe you have a connection to housing or you have a space that could be a, a where youth can have a retreat to organize themselves and gather for a couple of days or maybe You know somebody who knows someone that has a print shop and you can help the youth print out their flyers and organize that way. Or there's older folks that they can afford buying food for a local youth group for any of their organizing meetings and they can do the cooking for that. I think that there needs to be a deeper sense of responsibility for the older generation to recognize that all of the youth are are the older generation's children and the youth are just deeply struggling with the challenges of a climate crisis, the challenges of a housing crisis and an economic crisis. And so when people are just trying to survive every day, it leaves very little time, space and energy to actually organize effectively. And I also just want to acknowledge too that I've had such incredible support from older folks that I've met, you know, the place that I'm living right now. woman who owns this place she gave me discount rent because she understands and appreciates the value of the work that I do and that you know grassroots organizing does not pay and there's just been so much support from this network of older folks that I know where I am which has been huge because my family's back in the states I'm not with my family here and I'm putting myself through school so I think essentially there's just endless ways that people can just ease the burden for everybody. One of my friends who's in Sustain Us is one of the most brilliant organizers I've ever met. Her entire hometown burned in the Oregon fires. And so she's completely consumed by that. She had to defer the start to her PhD program at Columbia University that was fully focused on a human rights program. She had to defer all of that work to just organize immediate resources for her community. So, you know it's just youth are really dealing with on the ground issues every day, and there are so many ways that the older generation can can give support to just alleviate that burden so that they have greater capacity to continue fulfilling what they're doing.
1: yeah, no, thank you for those, and thank you for giving specifics. you know it helps to give um good starting points for folks um as there are endless ways as as you mentioned. And I will say that we're having this conversation on November 5th when it's still uncalled as far as who won the presidency of the United States. So we are in this kind of state of limbo. But, you know, a lot of these messages and calls to action hold true regardless of who becomes elected. You know, there's no guarantee that the right things will always happen you know regardless of who's president you know or who's in political leadership so it's it's things that we always need to keep very active in and hold leadership accountable
0: i think the the one thing that i will say is for me what is timeless and will surpass the outcomes of this election and all the next elections to come is essentially what the climate crisis comes down to for me is us repairing relationships and to repair relationships with ourselves, with one another and with our environment and how we do that is just truly through love. And I think that's, to me, that's what gives me the most hope and encouragement is I can't think of anything more exciting than falling in love again and again, every single day with my environment and with my community and with people that I meet. And with elders who I so cherish and the relationships that I honor and have so much gratitude for. And I just think being in a state of gratitude every single day is such a deeper, more fulfilling way to live. We're more present, we're more attentive, we're happier, and we're in a place of generosity and abundance. And I just think that those are the essences of just the qualities and characteristics that we need to embody to truly have this sustained effort to address the climate crisis and to rebuild and repair a stronger, more resilient, sustainable world for the future. And it really just comes down into our everyday lives. I remember a friend of mine in Sustain Us, part of her morning meditation ritual is to ask herself, what can I do for my community today? And so I really would challenge everybody to think what your question is to ground yourself in those values that you can ask yourself every day and you can show up to your own question.
1: Thank you so much to Maya Wickler for joining us today and sharing your story. You can find out more on the published writings, films, and current research of Maya's work on Instagram at Maya MayaRileyW. That's M-A-I-A-R-E-I-L-L-Y-W. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe for more stories and share these episodes with others to hear inspiring action to help you find your role in a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories4Action and Twitter at Stories4Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and the advancement of a thriving planet for all.